Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. episode of Pop Health Week on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks is brought to you by the Jefferson College of Population Health, the first college of its kind, providing graduate education supported by evidence-based research, scholarship, and publications. And welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show, and in the virtual studio today, as always, is my colleague Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week. For those of you not familiar with my colleague, Fred is a veteran healthcare executive, president of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm, and the father of the annual wellness visit. Fred serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Population Health Management and is known on Twitter as at FS Goldstein. My background includes thought leadership and strategy consulting for hospitals, health systems, and physician-led ventures. I publish and principally author ACOWatch.com, HealthInnovationMedia.com, and PrecisionMedicine.Center. Do follow me on Twitter via at the number two health guru. And now for today's special guest. David Nash, MD, MBA, is the founding and current dean of the Jefferson College of Population Health, arguably the dean of population health, Dr. Nash, academic, thought leader, evangelist, and convener extraordinaire, is a force of nature in the emerging science and published best practices of population health management. Repeatedly named to Modern Healthcare's list of most powerful persons in healthcare and sporting a litany of citations and industry honors too numerous to mention, bottom line, Dr. Nash is a determined warrior to define and architect the sustainable healthcare economy that works for all of us. So, Fred, with that truncated version of an extraordinary career, help us get to know Dr. Nash and what is on his plate these days. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Good afternoon. Thanks so much, Fred and Greg. Really appreciate being a guest on the program. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you again. As as I think we've talked about in prior shows, you are the most, uh, the the guest who has appeared the most times on on Pop Health Week, and we're glad to have you again. So let's start with, um, since last year's conference, another year has now gone by, and there have been a lot of different things going on in population health. So from your unique vantage point, um, what do you see that's changed over the past year? What sort of areas have we seen progress in or growth? Well, Fred, it's been an amazing year for sure when you start thinking about some of the changes and details. So taking it from 50,000 feet, I don't think I have to explain what population health is anymore. I mean, I think people are finally getting it. And so that's pretty exciting. 2018 is the 10th anniversary of the creation of our college, the first such college of its kind in the country. So that's a watershed event for us, for sure. Uh, I think we've also seen a lot of crazy market changes. Um, The failure of the Aetna, Humana, Cigna, Anthem deals early in 2017. Um, The 
now the purchase of by Aetna and, and CVS, pretty incredible, leading all the way to yesterday's crazy announcement <laughs> of uh, Warren Buffett, JP Morgan, and, and, and Amazon saying they're they're finally going to disrupt healthcare. So, the summary: uh, it's a change every day, and I think uh, change is the only constant as it relates to population health. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, and, and obviously with uh, yesterday's announcement, pretty unbelievable. So as you look at this area of population health, which really encompasses a lot of different pieces, um, parts, analytics, et cetera, what areas do you think right now excite you the most? Well, it's a great question, Fred. So as an example, we're still pretty pumped about the training leaders in quality and safety because you can't practice population-based care when medical error remains the third leading cause of death in our country. So we're excited about our international work now in improving quality and safety with our colleagues at ISQA in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, we're excited about the launch of our brand new and copyrighted population health intelligence master's degree that is starting right now and that is a uh, tribute to big data payer analytics looking at uh, distilling information from the data so number two is pop health intelligence <clears throat> I, I think number three is uh, just our ongoing work to keep track of where the marketplace is going and we do that with our population health academy on our campus three weeks out of the year devoted to uh, 35 persons making a 40-hour commitment to learn the language of population health. And then finally, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you and Greg at the Pop Health Colloquium coming up very soon. Yeah, I think the conference will be fantastic. We'll get to some of that in a little bit. So obviously, you know, data, a lot of other things, great stuff going on. What areas, as you look at population health, need a little bit more work or maybe um, some approaches that have not yet shown the progress expected? Are there any things like that you're seeing out there? Sure. So lots of people, us included, thought that the patient-centered medical home would be the answer or the accountable care organizations. You know, um, we haven't made nearly enough progress in care coordination risk-bearing for subspecialists. We're still stunted in the number of primary care doctors. We're still pumping out far too many super subspecialists relative to the number of primary care doctors. Uh, I don't think we've made enough progress to fix some of the structural limitations. And I'm particularly disappointed in the patient-centered medical home evidence and the accountable care evidence that we've been able to evaluate in the last year. So as you think about those two sort of key features of early moves towards system redefinition and other ways to do things, and, and, and we still um, continue this push, as you've talked about, this, this push to, or move to value-based care is inexorable. Is, are these merely bumps in the road to that, or do they point to some other issues that maybe make right. value-based care possibly not as, as strong yeah. as we had hoped? 
Well, boyfriend, that is the $64,000 question. Uh, you, you hit it right on the head. I'll give you my personal view. <clears throat> Excuse me. I hope it's a bump in the road. Um, I'm disappointed in the CMS administrator and the speed with which she's embraced bundled payment. You know, maybe the new Secretary of Health, Alex Azar, will push that back on track. Uh, I'm disappointed in the traction that some of the value-based purchasing programs have had. Uh, but overall, I mean, through the disappointment, I'm still optimistic about the future. So I, I think it's a bump in the road. Here's why I think that. Look, no matter how you slice it, we're still not getting value for what we're spending. That's what led Warren Buffett and Amazon to make their announcement yesterday. And so whether they can make it work or not, it's a separate conversation. But I believe that I'm optimistic because it's just not sustainable. We've got to come up with a better system and maybe let a thousand flowers bloom. And of the thousand flowers, maybe a hundred will, you know, will work and will really blossom to something that makes a difference. And I think we're going to have a lot of different perspectives at the colloquium, and, and maybe they represent the hundred or so flowers that have really bloomed in the last year. Might, might one of these flowers or one of these things that sort of held back some of that success been the fact that maybe the models and, the, and ha, have been out in front of the implementation of the population health approaches within the models? Yeah, well, that, that certainly could be. Uh, the models look great on paper, and then it's, uh, you know, the tactical reality. It's sort of just like warfare. When the shooting starts, all the plans go to hell. And then it's up to the local commanders and down to the squad level to make progress. And I, I think the analogy, while, you know, difficult, is probably apt. It, it's all about doctor leadership of the team. Uh, it's all about reducing waste, still the blocking and tackling. And, and we've not done a great job on the blocking and tackling for sure. So as, as people move to these value-based models, and obviously you talked about PCMHs and ACOs, there have also been these aggressive moves to begin to accept risk, um, do you know bundle payments, set up health plans by providers, et cetera. And again, we've seen some stumbling there. Um, you still think, as you talk about with population health, that these even larger approaches to go global risk or to set up health plans by providers is an opportunity? And if so, what are some of the key takeaways that maybe the individuals who have struggled with it um, might lead to some different approaches in the future? Wow. Well, I still think it's a takeaway. Let, let's think of some good examples over the last couple of months, Fred. So, DaVita. So, of course, a number of years ago, DaVita paid a premium for health partners out in California. They seemed to be making a go of it. They bought the Everett Clinic and a bunch of other amazing practices. And then all of a sudden, uh, DaVita's stock not doing too well. And before you know it, United is buying a big chunk of DaVita's practices. And now United, just in the last year, turns out to be the largest employer of doctors outside of the VA healthcare system. So that transition seemed to happen just in the last couple of months. Now the question is, can United and Optum 
do with DeVito what DeVito wasn't able to do with health partners. Who knows? My own opinion is it's all about, again, physician leadership. Um, it's, it's looking in the mirror. It's reducing unexplained clinical variation. It's closing the feedback loop with providers in a non-punitive way with good data in a timely way. It's, it's uh, looking in the mirror and saying, gee, I've been in practice now for 30 years. Am I still on top of my game? What's the data show? How can I improve? And, and on we go. So um, lots of transitions in the marketplace, but when you boil it all away, it's still about doctor leadership. Yeah, and it, interesting as you bring that one up with United, doesn't that really point to the fact that United believes the future is in the provider space? Yeah, well, I think you, I can't speak for United, but my guess is that they don't want to be encumbered by the bricks and mortar of a delivery system. They, they want just the docs and a lot less expensive than owning the hospital and owning the ambulatory care clinic. Just get the docs and they'll do their thing. Uh, mm -hmm. The challenge is when we do our thing, it's expensive and highly variable. Uh, I'm not sure every non-clinician leader really appreciates the variability. And, you know, variation is expensive. Variation is sometimes deadly. And so mm -hmm. confronting all this, that's hard for organizations to do. Right. And at the same time, you know, the system you're at, Jefferson, has grown from three hospitals to over 13, I think, in the past three years. That's and right. I also know that you guys have been doing some kind of unique stuff in the community and looking at how you work with that. How does that, that aggregation as Jefferson grows uh, perhaps facilitate some of that more population health-based approach or community approach? Does it help there? Well, well, we'll see. I mean, I hope I'm around to give you a good answer soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's no secret that we've got a lot of inequities in care in this town. Uh, based on gender and race and zip code. Uh, we're in a five medical school town, don't forget. And yet our county ranks dead last as the least healthy county in the whole darn state of Pennsylvania. Uh, we got disparities in income in our own town that drive disparities in life expectancy. And you and I have chatted about this before. None of that's been resolved. If you grow up in Society Hill, three blocks from where I'm sitting, you're going to live well into your 80s. You go a couple of miles north of here, right across the street from one of our medical centers on Broad Street, and your life expectancy is 68, not wow. 82. So disparities in income education are a key driver of outcome, having nothing to do with Jefferson or Penn or Temple for that matter. But that in and of itself is a unique opportunity for some That's of these right. new ideas in population health, isn't it? That's right. So then come along radical new practices like Absolute One, which basically says, bring me your tired, your hungry, your poor, and we'll help them. Imagine making a margin on the dual eligibles. Now, that takes a certain amount of guts 
and care coordination, maybe even chutzpah, to make a margin on dual eligibles. And, and they're doing it. And maybe we need Iora Health and other organizations like them, Forward Health and Iora, and, and the new type of primary care practices that are all about technology and linking patients 24-7 and constant communication and starting the day asking, hey, where's Mrs. Jones? She had 10 admissions last year. Instead of starting the day, hey, here, here's my list of patients. Get on that gerbil wheel and get busy. It's a totally different mindset, Fred. And, you know, guys like me and you, we may not be able to adapt to that. Maybe it's folks more like my daughter, who's a chief resident in medicine, and she's just starting her attending career. For her, this will be normal operating procedure. Mm-hmm. If you were to talk to a group of physicians out there today, what would you tell them to do? Wow. Well, just <laughs> last night, that's a great question. Just last night, I had the privilege of being with 40 or so emerging leaders of uh, primary care practices from all over our region at Tandime Health, and uh, they were really interested in exactly that question. And I, I told them what I tell every group of emerging doctor leaders. It's all about looking in the mirror. We have seen the enemy, and it is us. So we wow. got to we, we got to self-reflect, Fred. It's awfully hard to do. I, I'm not saying I'm any better at it than anybody else. But you got to look in the mirror. you got to ask ourselves, why are we ordering these tests? What's the end result here? Why are we admitting this 95-year-old to the intensive care unit? Why are we contemplating renal dialysis on somebody with a lifespan of three months? You, you know, these are some of the tougher ethical questions we have to ask. And then in the population health arena, we have to ask, hey, where's my patient going to go when we discharge them from the hospital? A couple of weeks ago, I had a national leader say to me, he's banning the use of discharge of that word from his vocabulary and the vocabulary of his entire staff. That We don't ever discharge a patient. We just It's a temporary goodbye from the hospital but we never discharge them from our care. Wow, that's a mind blower. And it's right up there with who's not here today, who needs to be. So can we make these kinds of cultural shifts in our practice? I, I hope so. That's, that's really an interesting thought. You know, yeah. to begin to recognize that that patient is, is a member of your organizations for an extended period of time, whether that's they're right. in it or not. And That's right. it gets to an, an, another thought that I've seen bandied around with, and I'd love your comment on this because it was this whole concept of social determinants of health. And I saw a piece by an individual, I believe, from Kaiser who said, we shouldn't be using the term determinants because it's not determined. It should be social influencers of health because we can change that. Mm. And, and uh, very similar to your discussion there on the idea of discharge. That's right. And, you know, we can influence those determinants or influencers. That, that's a hard job, Fred, as, as you know. <laughs> and having been now in practice for 30 years, uh, I'm not sure I'm any better at changing behavior than I was 20, 25 years ago. 
So what does that mean? Well, well, that means we ought to be putting this stuff in the curriculum and uh, mm-hmm. behavioral economics, addiction medicine, nutrition counseling, exercise physiology. I mean, we're terrible at all that. Yeah, and obviously if you begin to teach it, and doesn't that also point to maybe creating this broader system that includes folks outside of that care system as part of the decision makers, influencers, operators within this broader approach to try to create health and reduce those disparities you so see in Philadelphia or we see here in Jacksonville? Sure. I think we're going to need that diabetes nurse educator, the care manager, the care navigator. Let me tell your listeners a quick story. I'm just a week or so back from a work-related trip to India, and I visited a 2,400-bed hospital in a town called Belgam, just east of Goa. And the detail's not important for our listeners, but one apocryphal story. So they took me to a rural health clinic, 30 villages, 74,000 people. And they had 74 community health workers called ASHAs. And these, these ASHAs are pretty damn amazing. They really live in the village, and, and they're in charge of who's sick and who might be pregnant and who's got malnutrition. And they're the direct village link to the delivery system. So you know when we say it takes a village, that's exactly what I saw. Now can you imagine what would be the comparable structure in our country? You know, I I just don't see it. And yet, and yet in high-rise buildings in Camden, New Jersey, the one of the poorest communities in our country, there are caseworkers and community workers living in those buildings helping those folks on the road to better health. So can it be done everywhere? Well, you know, maybe. It's just an interesting story because I saw it with my own eyes in a really rural part of India where 60% of the women are illiterate, 40% are illiterate. Imagine what they're able to do, right? So here we are with all our riches I wonder if we could make kind of comparable progress. It would take a village to make that kind of progress. Yeah, it most certainly would. And, you know, speak of progress and stuff, each year as I've been at the colloquium, it always seems to come upon a couple of different areas that are really early, like you talked about Camden and a few years back with Dr. Branner speaking about that. And now that's sort of become more into the mainstream. Um, and so what are you what are you seeing or what are you bringing in this year to the conference or what are some of the areas of focus? Wow, well, thanks for the opportunity, Fred. Yeah, I, I think we, we have a pretty good record of looking around the corner and making <laughs> some pretty good bets. Uh, not that I'm ready to go to Las Vegas or anything, but uh, we've done a pretty good job, especially in the last uh, you know four or five years, kind of making some pretty solid predictions. So uh, I'm excited this year. I, I think we're we've matured. Uh, we've got some fantastic sponsors from organizations like Philips, uh, Northwell, 
Humana. I mean, right there, it exemplifies the broad reach and the broad audience. We, we've, we've got, you know, a global population health company, that's Philips. We've got a national payer, that's Humana. We've got a regional powerhouse provider, that's Northwell. I mean, you tell me another conference where all three of those strange bedfellows are going to share the stage. Uh, that just doesn't happen. We're all siloed off talking to each other. So that's, I think, the greatest strength of the colloquium. And also, of course, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, we're going to do Hearst Health number three. Pretty incredible. And now we've got a track record, hundreds of applications over the last three years. We're, we're even doing a deep dive and a study of who are these people and what is it about these hundreds of applicants that have distinguished them in the marketplace? So I'm excited about Tuesday morning, March 20, you know, handing that big check. And we're going to give a runner-up prize this year, too. So that's really wonderful. So wow. when you think about who's going to be on stage and the Hearst Prize, I, I, I'm really pretty pumped. No, yeah, no think- colloquium would be the same without, <clears throat> you know some pretty amazing national disruptors. I can think of two better ones than my boss, Steve Clasco, and uh, his good pal and my pal, Mike Dowling from Northwell. So I'm going to get these two critters back on stage, Steve Clasco and Mike Dowling, and then I'm going to just duck after I read (laughs) them, you know, the rules of the road and let them go at it. So I got my Kevlar suit is at the cleaners getting ready for March. <laughs> That's going to be fantastic. I'm looking forward to that as well, David. And I know it, it seems each year the conference gets bigger, yet it's still a great opportunity, not only for people to come and learn, but to network. And that's what I've always found so interesting, to find somebody that, to talk to you about some area you may have interest. They're there at the conference. And I think the way you've set it up is really fantastic around that. Well, I, I do appreciate that, Fred. And You know, to all of our listeners, uh, I hope that people will come as uh, first-timers and and, and really introduce themselves. Uh, I think on the last day, we've got a real, real surprise this year. And uh, I know that uh, folks are going to be interested to see Daryl Strawberry. You heard me right. Daryl Strawberry in person talking about his incredible journey from, you know, superstar baseball player, drug addict, recovery, and now ordained Christian minister. When you read his life story, it's like a Hollywood movie. And we've got Daryl all teed up to give a talk about his own opioid addiction and how he overcame that. And I think that's timely for sure. And then we're bringing back some folks in their new role. So Evan Benjamin... For many years, my close pal, chief medical officer at Tufts, and now coming back at Ariadne Labs. That's the Atul Gawande think tank right outside Harvard Medical School. Evan is the new chief medical officer working with Atul every day. So it's just going to be, it'll it'll blow it all away. Wow. It's, it's fantastic. A great, great group of people coming in to speak. And I'm really looking forward to it this year, David. So um, I guess March 19th through 21st, the place to be in population health is obviously Philadelphia. You bet. 
<laughs> uh, with that, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today, David. And uh, it's been a pleasure as always. Looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. And thanks to all of our listeners. And uh, please come and say hi when you come to the city of brotherly love. We're really looking forward to crushing those patriots on Sunday. <laughs> Go Eagles. And that will have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our guest, Dr. David Nash, Dean of the Jefferson College of Population Health, for his time and candid insights today. Do follow Dr. Nash's work on Twitter via at Nash Pop Health, the College of Population Health via at Jefferson JCPH, and on the web via www.jefferson.edu. And finally, if you are tasked with population health at your health plan, health system, physician venture, state or federal oversight agency, or simply feel drawn to the emerging world of population health management, the 18th Population Health Colloquium convenes in Philadelphia for March 19th through the 21st, 2018. Consider joining your peers in the city of brotherly love and the likely home of the soon-to-be Super Bowl champions, the Philadelphia Eagles. So for more information, go to www.populationhealthcolloquium.com. And until we meet again on Pop Health Week for Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying bye now.